there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. This is The Gala Show. I'm your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery. On this episode, you may know my guest as the host of the podcast Postmortem, a collaborator of Stephen King, the writer of Hocus Pocus, or even as the director of Critters 2, the main course. But here on The Gala Show, I know him as the nicest guy in Hollywood, Nick oh, Garris. <laughs> Hi, Mick. Hi, Gala. It's so great to have you here at Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters. <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's funny. I'm actually in where Mick normally sits, and he's in the guest spot. In it his... feels weird, but kind of nice. It's cushy on the couch. <laughs> yeah, it really is. You have a very nice couch. Thank you. Okay, so actually, really weird fact that I found out while I was like doing my little research. Are you born on December 4th? Yes. So you and I have the same birthday. We do. And, and Tony Todd. Oh, yeah. And Jay-Z. And Jeff Bridges. Okay. There's all the people that are born on our beautiful day. But oh, well, you're notables also, other than me. <laughs> you're, um, you're also born in Santa Monica? Yeah. At well, St. John's Hospital. I am too. This is too weird. <laughs> That's really weird. I was like, what are the odds he's going to be born at St. John's on December 4th? Pretty amazing. That's so weird. So A few years apart, though. Just, just, a, just a little. Just Couple one or here. two. Yeah. <laughs> So before we bring up the topic for today, I have a question for you. I recently did an interview for the Fangoria Archives where I got to pick three of my favorite covers from Fangoria. And of course, I had to pick the Critters 2 cover. Uh. It was like, I picked like a movie I had seen from because of video archives or a movie I had seen before because of and then like during. Right. And that Critters was the one I saw during because you interviewed my dad. Uh. And I I. I love critters. Honestly, my friends Thank are kind you. of annoyed with how much I love critters. <laughs> Nobody's going to be annoyed here. Yeah, I know exactly. But um, inside the Fangoria article um, magazine, there was this really interesting article um, where he, apparently he came to set, and he was like not happy to be on set. Do you remember him what, coming? Who coming to set? Uh, one of the Fangoria uh, guys. Apparently, oh. he came to set, and it was like he was talking about he was in Santa Clarita. 
Do you remember that? I don't remember anything. Was it Taylor White? It might have been. I can't it might remember. Have been exactly. Taylor White. I actually made him uh, an extra in the movie. Oh, and did he you? He had a great time. Did he? So. He was Gee. so curmudgeonly in the Bangor. Really? He was like, I'm out here in Santa Clarita. It's wet and it's cold. Well, it was the coldest day in a hundred years. The whole co- really? coldest period of time in a hundred years while we were shooting there. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. In 100 years, and it hasn't gotten colder since. Oh, well, I'm sure it's only gotten warmer like everywhere else. <laughs> like everywhere. Or there's a hurricane happening. Or Who there's knows? a hurricane. I, I haven't seen the Santa Clarita uh, hurricane yet. but No, but one day. It's one coming. One day soon. And now it's time for a commercial break. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. So as always, my guest gets to bring their topic to the mic. Mick, why don't you tell us what your topic is and why you decided to choose it? Well, I think a really interesting point of conversation is books and the source material they're based on and how they are very different from one another because they're totally different media. But a very profound but really obvious thing that the uh, author and screenwriter Richard Matheson told me when we were working on Amazing Stories together, he said, books are internal and film is external. Oh, that's a good point. Well, it's duh, but <laughs> but it is really profound. Duh. <laughs> no, I like that because I hadn't thought of that before, actually. Cause... But it's it's really true. And one of the challenges of a filmmaker who's adapting a literary uh, source material is how you make you externalize what is internal and i've been faced with that many times adapting stephen king and clive barker and, mm-hmm. uh, and steve martini and various other authors including myself um and I, I just think it's it's a fascinating topic that people don't often talk about i agree and i cannot wait to dig into it today so that is our topic for today the difference between movies and their original literary source material 30 minutes on the clock, and our time starts now. Whoa, okay. I know, I got a little timer for you and everything. Yeah, I just, well, having worked with Stephen King so much, um, it's really fascinating to see the way he works because three of the projects that I worked on, uh, that I directed, he actually wrote the screenplays himself. Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite genres, actually, in movies, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, but... Authors who adapt their own source material. I mean, like, Let the Right One In, John Avery Livingkiss did that, The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty, yeah. Altered States, Patty Chayefsky, Rollerball, even William Harrison. The list goes on and on. So how do you think that affects the process, like, when they're adapting their own work? Well, it's interesting because not all novelists make good screenwriters because you do have to consider that it's a visual medium, even though it's a verbal medium as well. 
not having just two people talking to each other in a room to explain the plot and everything mm -hmm. that's going on. But somebody like Stephen King, who writes very cinematically, and he's a brilliant novelist and really knows his prose and knows when and where to expand, be expansive with his prose. But he is able to, it's amazing to take like a 1,300-page novel like The Stand mm -hmm. and turn it into a 460-page screenplay for the miniseries that we did. But um, writing fiction and prose is very much like Richard Matheson said, something that's internal. You're talking more about the thoughts and machinations behind the actions rather than the actions themselves, depending on the book, of course. A lot of, you know, pulp uh, fiction, yeah. if I may borrow the term, <laughs> is very much about action and, and reaction and, and explosives and, and kineticism. Whereas I would say the preponderance of literature at least half of every book is internal. And so King's stuff, in particular The Shining, is a very internal novel about the unraveling so. into madness by Jack Torrance. And it was in his hands to turn that into a screenplay because famously he did not like Kubrick's film. Yes. And mainly because the book is really personal to him. And for Kubrick, it was a, a movie. Yeah. And it was a movie to tell. And King, I've said this many times, but King is very warm. And Kubrick is very, very cool and detached. Yeah, he is very, he's very particular. He's very like methodical. And, schematic like, exact, even. Schematic, yeah. I would agree with that. He's very exact in what it, and it can almost be a little sterile sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And it's not really about, you know, Jack Nicholson is crazy from the get-go and gets crazier. Whereas in King's novel and his screenplay and in the miniseries we made together, you take a sane man who is feeling the guilt of having committed terrible violence against his young boy, mm -hmm. broken his arm in a drunken rage because he couldn't control his intake of alcohol. That's something really personal to Stephen King. Yeah. I don't know that he ever hurt one of his sons or Or, or was daughter, hurt by someone. Or yeah. was hurt by someone, but... He knew what the tightrope you walk is when you can't control your relationship with the bottle. Yeah. So that was, he was hurt by the rejection of what the most important elements to his novel were. Yeah, because, I mean, my dad always tells the story that uh, actually Kubrick and John Millius, and I think he told it on your podcast about when Kubrick bought a gun from John Millius right. and then he called him back and he's like, uh, he completely changed the gun. It's like, no, I made it better. And that's how Kubrick sees an adaptation is that you have to completely dismantle it and then put it back together with yourself involved. Whereas King, with The Shining, I'm guessing specifically, it was very personal to him. So he didn't want someone to take it apart and then put it back together. He wanted yeah. it just to be what it was. But he could turn it into a different medium because oh, of course. he knows that medium. But it, it was an interesting experience making The Stand, which he also adapted himself. Mm -hmm. um, because before that, he didn't have as much respect for screenwriting as he did for novel writing. Interesting. And he, he said that to me during the production of The Stand is when he developed his respect for the medium of screenwriting being every bit as respectable as the medium of fiction writing. Because he'd been writing 
you know, he wrote Sleepwalkers uh, mm-hmm. that we did together uh, as an original screenplay, and it's written sort of as a B movie. It's uh, even though we tried to elevate it into something that the dramatic elements were as good as any other movie, it was still him playing in the B movie world. Yeah. You know, it's a monster movie and it's about sex and and feeding a virgin feeding off of a virgin's <laughs> essence. It's still that B movie like Yeah. in itself. How did you and King first meet each other? We first met on uh on Sleepwalkers. Yeah. When um I was interviewed to to direct it. Uh I was a big fan of the genre, big fan of the works of Stephen King. I knew it really well. I had a great meeting with them uh, at Columbia, and then they hired somebody else. Oh. (laughs) And then that somebody else started rewriting Stephen King's script. And King did not like that. King and Columbia did not like that. Interesting that Columbia, that's really great that Columbia like backed King. Well, it's not the most altruistic reason. The reason was you can't call a movie Stephen King's Sleepwalkers if he doesn't like the script. And if he goes out and says, hey, this was rewritten, this isn't my word, you can't say, Yeah, yeah. can't put my name on it. He has to agree to put his name on. And so that was the reason Columbia wasn't happy about yeah. it. But then they brought you in and you did the original script, I'm assuming. We did the original script, but we also made some changes. The studio had some problems and some issues. And I would suggest to King, because I'm a writer-director as well, I would mm-hmm. suggest to King that, um, do you want me to take a crack at the notes they have here? He said, well, no, let me let me take a look at it and give it a try. And the next day in the fax machine. The, <laughs> That's how long ago this was. <laughs> 1992. Um, Before I was born. <laughs> yes. So there would be a half a dozen pages in the fax machine when I got to the office in the morning. And it was great stuff. That's great. Uh, you know, there were a couple of things that I wrote um, that with his permission that he really liked like mm-hmm. the the scene in the mirror where we see what the coupling mother and son really yeah. look like as sleepwalkers was something that was added that that uh that I put in but mostly it's definitely King's vision. Do you remember any besides that addition that you just mentioned do you remember any other uh, things in sleepwalkers that were like notes that you guys specifically like wrote together to improve it for the studio? Um, one thing was nobody ever says where the sleepwalkers come from. Mm -hmm. And so I had the idea in the opening titles where we actually give the, the definition from the Chillicothe Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge or something like that, which is not a real book, but we treat it as if it was. I I honestly just thought it was a real book when you mentioned it. Everybody does. You said it with such authority that I'm like, wow, I'm going to go to the library and go find the sleepwalkers. Uh, Well, it it helped explain something in one sentence Mm -hmm. in the titles that would have taken two or three scenes to accomplish. And... King loved it and then made a few tweaks to it himself. And so that addressed studio notes in an elegant and very quick way that did not require much screen time Mm -hmm. or diversion from the story we were telling. Yeah. You've also mentioned that you've worked on material that was like written by Clyde Barker. Yeah. How is that different than with King? Well, it's really interesting working with Clive. We've re- recently written a pilot together. Oh, We've that's done great. stuff together before. Um, 
a lot more of that is in my hands. You know, Clive, as a screenwriter, my experience with Clive is we co-write. Okay. And he's the idea man. And he's... It's like my dad called himself. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I'm as much a typist as I am a writer when I'm working with Clive. Yeah. But he's incredibly open to ideas and revisions and things. We've worked together off and on for 30 years. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, just really, really good friends. And I know how his mind works, which <laughs> is a terrible thing. <laughs> I mean, he's he's got one of the most brutal and yet loving and affectionate minds I know. I find that people are like that. Like when they are really dark and they create really dark material, they're typically the nicest people. We get it out. Yeah. You exercise those demons through yeah. your art. And I think people, Repression is a terrible thing. Yeah. And I think people also misunderstand that, like, especially also like with like uh, rap artists. Uh, they're not always gang banging and shooting up things <laughs> and doing drugs. Um, I remember Snoop Dogg had, um, he had like a reality show called, I think like called like Fatherhood. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. And he used to go, like his wife was so funny and like he, he would just go to the shed. And just like go ra- like right in the shed, oh, wow. and then would like come up with all like this like gangster stuff. And I'm sure he's lived this life before, but now he's a family man. It's like fatherhood. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like you are exercising those demons, and like you're not doing everything that you see on the screen or on the page. Obviously. Yeah, the, it's really interesting, you know, putting together these masters of horror dinners that we've done in the past, and and hopefully we'll do some more in the future. The people within the genre, I know are really sweet, wonderful people. And I think what binds us is the fact that we're all outsiders. And a little misunderstood, I think, yeah, by the rest greatly, of Hollywood. Greatly yeah. misunderstood and, and, and disrespected. Well, it's funny because I feel like film people in general are like the weird kid in school. Yes. But then when you get all the weird kids together, you're still going to find like a group of them that you still think, oh, they're even weirder than yeah. we are. And I feel like that's the horror guys. That's us. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, oh, yeah, we're all weird, but I don't know about those guys. Yeah. But, and those yeah. that's why they're so nice, typically. Yeah, being an outsider and... Oh, that's why there are horror conventions and there yeah. aren't Western conventions or romantic comedy conventions. You know, the people who tell horrific stories are exercising their demons, but they're also playing tag with their fears in a really safe yeah. way. That's a really good way to put it. And actually, I never even thought about that, that there are horror conventions, but like you don't, and you get sci- sci-fi kind of dips itself yeah, in there they, a little bit. They, they co-mingle. Yeah. Like, we're like, they're like cousins, I yeah, would say. Yeah, kissing like, cousins. Yeah, kissing cousins. Oh, no one ever uses that phrase. I love that phrase. <laughs> yeah, well, that was an Elvis Presley movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's no like Westerns or rom-coms because that seemed as like a little bit more normal, I guess I would say. Well, yeah, you're, you're binding together outsiders with yeah. their shared love of... Uh, a genre that is disrespected because people you know who are bothered by horror movies uh, that's fine mm-hmm. let them be just don't let them take them away from everybody else who's not because i find them very therapeutic as well as entertaining oh i do too do you think that um adapting original material for like horror or sci-fi is kind of easier than adapting it for like dramatic or like do you, you know I, I don't because i think good horror or sci-fi still first and foremost has to be good drama. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot harder to do good horror. You know, it's easy to do a splatter movie. Yeah. It's easy to do a slasher. You know, the, the demands, the dramatic 
and dramaturgical yeah. demands for a slasher movie are not as high as something like Talk to Me or you know, or The Exorcist or the Stephen King yeah. stories or the like, because the characters have to be rich and interesting and intricate. Mm-hmm. The plot lines have to take you someplace unexpected and surprising. But you also have to build and release tension and suspense on top of that. Yeah, and then also I find that horror and science fiction as a genre, specifically science fiction, but I think horror as well, there are always commentaries on like what's going on in the world today, where I feel like as the other genres of movies like dramas and westerns that we don't get so much commentary. Yeah, they're just straight ahead storytelling where we're working in metaphor. Yeah, I, I really always appreciate that, especially just, I mean, like my favorite movies are genre films. That's, yeah. that's what I love. That's what I eat. I live. I breathe it. Uh, yeah, you could live at the New Beverly Theater. Right? I basically do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, there, I need a blanket. I need a pillow. <laughs> so when it comes to adaptations, is there something that like you wish that you could adapt? Well, I really wanted to do Gerald's Game. You know, the Stephen King novel. Yeah. And for years, people thought it was unfilmable, and I figured out a way I could do it. And and there was a period of time where Stephen King wanted to direct it, and I would produce it. Wow. Uh, and then he decided not to direct after his accident. Yeah. But um, Mike Flanagan got it and did a great job of it. But that was something that I felt like it would have been a real challenge, but I knew how to do it. And I would love to have done that. How would you have done it? Well, you know, basically it's 90 minutes of a woman handcuffed naked to a bed. Yeah. I'd put her in underwear. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first step. Get, first the, step. get the correct rating. <laughs> but, I mean, just make it kind of what Flanagan did, but just keep it in that that room. Yeah. Almost like a play, but using every cinematic technique you could every trick of the camera that would not feel masturbatory, but keep it tight and claustrophobic and painful. And, you know, what's outside, you you hear wolves outside and, mm-hmm. and the fear of that invasion. But, but to be as, you know, I experimented with writing the bullet. So much of that is internalized that rather than have narration, which is the cheap way out mm-hmm. of getting the internal outside, I actually had his alter ego in the back seat of the car. Yeah. So they would have conversations, the character and the same character. Which is kind of the internal conversation that someone's having when they're writing a book almost. Exactly. So that was a, an experience that that I tried. The movie did not do well at all, but I think the the technique worked to mm-hmm. make something internal, external. And this is all, everything she's under is external. And, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of thoughts other than how the fuck am I going to get out of this terrible yeah, this exactly. situation with my dead husband on top of me. Yeah. Um, and it just would have been a hothouse movie. Yeah, exactly. Are there things that you would have done differently than how Flanagan did them? Um. I didn't get that. Well, far. actually, of course, you would have done things differently because yeah, it would have I been would've. two different people adapting yeah. material. And I don't think anyone. Even would if have, it was the same script. Even if it, it was the exact different. same script, it would have been different. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also a, a book, a novel that I wrote called Salome. Mm-hmm. That's a Hollywood desert noir murder mystery. Yeah. 
not a horror movie, though the elements become somewhat horrific. That's something I hope to do one day, but right now modern noir is not popular. Unfortunately, because noir is like one of my other favorite genres. Same here. It's like, I think it's some of the best storytelling, and I also just think it's... John Dahl is one of the great artists of modern noir. Yeah, and also I love, well, I love L.A. noir also because I Oh, me too. Yeah, I think that's like my favorite. Well, I grew up in the city. Yeah. So it's like, it's my city. And so it's like, I want to watch my city and like the noir. And it just, there's a romantic aspect of that to me. Oh, it's, it's so great. I mean, James Elroy is such a king of that. And LA Confidential is a masterpiece. And Chinatown, they're masterpieces of of LA noir. And I also love it because I feel like LA noir really involves the real history of LA inside of it and then uses LA as a character. And I like that about noir is that it uses the city and the setting as characters. Absolutely. And uh, there's a lot less character in this city as it ages. Isn't that weird? You would think that like like a fine wine, yeah, the city would. Yeah, but it's getting torn torn down to be replaced with high rise and it is, modern crap. It's sad. Like my dad grew up in the South Bay. And yeah. when I go visit the South Bay now, it's like all the little tiny beach houses that like I loved growing up, yeah. they're all gone. And yep. it's just like these big boxes. And I think... This is like sad. It's like the culture, like Hermosa Beach is still small. Yeah. But it's getting to the point where it's not going to be anymore, and which it's is sad to me. become party beach. Yeah. yeah. And it has become party beach. I mean, well, you have Dockweiler. It's like the one place you can have an open fire yeah. on the beach in LA. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be party beach. <laughs> but talking about LA Noir, the amazing thing about Chinatown, it's one of the most literate movies ever made, but it's not based on a book. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's also, it is built on the whole Owens Valley water, true history right. of LA. Right. So I guess you're you're not really adapting a book, but are you adapting newspaper? Like is newspaper technically literary material? I don't know. To, to come up with, I mean, for to come up with the idea yeah. in the first place of a movie about the mystery behind water <laughs> is and how it's being served to a community is like the most boring idea you could come up with. It's but, all Chinatown. <laughs> but it's just so good in every respect and so literate and literary, yeah. but in the most complimentary sense. Do you think that, because nowadays we also have a lot of movies that are not just adapted from books or literature, I guess, like we have stuff that's adapted from video games, which I yeah. think can be very literary, um, a video game, because it's a long-form storytelling that you're kind of going through. But do you think like the the kind of source material also affects the process? Maybe. I, you know, I'm not a gamer, yeah. and so I've not gone to many of the video game movies. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a handful of them, and it's it's not for me. Yeah. But um, where, whatever the source Storytelling is storytelling. Yeah. An adaptation, you're you're channeling that medium into the film medium. Yeah. So wherever a good story comes from, if you can adapt it into a good movie, more power to you. Do you ever think there are movies that are like better than the original source material? Uh, there have been. You know, I I, I think um, oh the Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, that he directed from the book. Oh. Uh, oh, Mystic River. Okay. Dennis Lehane's novel is fantastic. Yeah. I've never seen an adaptation that so captured the atmosphere of a novel as Clint Eastwood did with Mystic River. I think that it's as good as the book and maybe a little wow. better because 
I mean, Amy Ryan's performance in yeah. that, Kevin Bacon, everybody in it is so good. But there's this palpable level of dread that it's something I've never seen from a Clint Eastwood-directed movie before or since that carries all the way through that movie. And it's that dread that originated in the movie, yeah, in the book. in the book, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting also because, um, like, for example, I love Ken Russell. And so yeah. Ken Russell, he adapts very musically. Like, he has yeah. all these, like, musical adaptations. Oh, and he's absolutely. doing, like... Like with Mahler, for example, he's telling the story of Mahler. But he was the a- worst interview I ever had. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Pause, pause, pause. Okay, wait. Tell me about this. I have to know. Well, it was, uh, they were showing uh, one of his movies. I think it was The Devils at the Cinematheque. That's at the, the one movie I haven't seen yet. Oh, I have it, but it's I, I'm amazing. waiting. I'm waiting because it's like one of my last ones to see. It's amazing. It's yeah. really fantastic. And so I had heard how hard he was on interviewers. Yeah. And I was asked to do the Q&A, and we were emailing together. And I said, now, you know, I, I know that you're not a big fan of interviews. I think his wife, Lisey Tribble, yeah. uh, was really the one corresponding, wor- corresponding with me because, um, you know, uh, I had sent my book to him to read because we, he, he wanted to do an episode of Masters of Horror, mm-hmm. and he'd written a script that really was not suitable for what we were doing yeah and so i offered to either help or or write for him or whatever and sent him my novel as an example of my work and suddenly very enthusiastic about it which was humbling and wonderful for me as as a writer to get that from somebody i respected so much so we did this q a at the arrow and i asked him one question and he went off and was incredibly mean spirited. That's I've heard. That's like what how he yeah, is. That's I've heard how he that. does. And so after that answer, I said, "Okay, questions from the audience." Oh my god, <laughs> let's turn it over so he can yell at one of you instead. Yeah, exactly. It, it worked out really well that way. It's funny because like I'm glad that I'll never meet him because I respect him so much as a filmmaker. Yeah. I feel like if I met him, I could only be disappointed. Meeting your heroes. Yeah, meeting your... Usually are, it's good. Usually I've I've had the chance to meet a lot of really cool people, like you, Mick. Oh, had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, top of the list, right? <laughs> well, okay, with my love for Critters, too, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've had the chance to meet like a lot of really cool people. And there are some people that like you meet and like it's like, wow, this is so great. But like, I really want to meet Brad Dourif. Oh, but, like, yeah. I'm, I'm terrified to meet Brad Dourif. Uh, one day I will, but I don't know if like you're a huge Star Trek fan. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Uh, but Mark Alimo, who plays Gul Dukat in Deep Space Nine, uh-huh. I saw him at Thanksgiving at the grocery store. And he's out of makeup. And I just, I recognized him. I started freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, it's Gul Dukat. It's like he's following me around the store. Like, what do I do? And I didn't say hello to him. But you I was, didn't? No, I was, it was Thanksgiving. I didn't want to like, he was like with someone. I didn't want to disturb him. People... Mostly, I think people appreciate yeah. when you recognize them, especially if you tell them you like something obscure that yeah. they were in. It's so funny. My brother sees him at the thrift store, and he wears these like sparkly shoes. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, he's wearing the sparkly shoes!" Like I saw him. It was, but yeah, there's some people. It's like, and they're it's weird picks that I like, I would never approach. But like, I guess he's one of them. But. Well, I'd met Ken Russell. He came to one of our Masters of Horror dinners, yeah. and he was silent and very nice and sort of like a potentate that everyone was paying homage yeah. to. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was my K-1 
Ken Russell interview experience. One question. Well, I'm glad that I did. What do? You, what question was it? Do you remember? I, I don't remember, but it was an introduction. <laughs> you blocked question. it out. You blocked it out. You're like, I don't want to yeah, know. <laughs> it was. It's gone. Yeah, but it was just a very standard introductory kind of question to to start things rolling, and he did. And yeah, he I let the ball be handed off. <laughs> it's funny though because I find that he adapts very musically, and like I've oh, watched yeah. a bunch of his stuff. Like he's done. Uh, stories about all sorts of people, dancers, composers, sculptors, composers. Yeah. He mostly does composers, but he's done sculptors and dancers as well. He did a thing on Isadora Duncan for the BBC, and he yeah. did um, The Savage Messiah with that. But uh, I find it interesting he's adapting someone's life story, but then also I find that he's adapting the musical, like the album also. Yeah. Like with Tommy, yeah. it's like he is adapting an album. And so and I, I feel, love Tommy. I love Tommy. Sure I mean, plays a mean pinball. No kidding. Deaf, down, and blind. It's like that. That's actually I my loved first... the album before the movie. Yeah. But... And it was funny. I saw that movie. I think I was like 12, maybe. Yeah. I was yeah. in like third or fourth grade. So maybe younger. I don't know. It's so weird to have Anne Margaret in it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like my first Ken Russell movie I ever saw. Really? Like third grade, so thanks, Dad. <laughs> but it was a good one, but I thought everyone knew, like, Deaf, Dumb, and Blind sure plays Mean Pinball. And oh, that of course, was a huge hit Of course song. no one did in my age, though. Of course not. I also thought the Violent Femmes were, like, the biggest band ever, and, like, none of my <laughs> friends knew who they were. Well, you're 27, right? Yeah, now yeah. I am, yeah. yeah. But so, back then I wasn't. <laughs> but, yeah, back when you're 12. Back it wasn't told, a hit. No, it was not a hit for sure. But I, I think it's interesting though. It's like to adapt something like actually literary versus to adapt something that's musical. Because as you said, like literature is internal. Yeah. And I wonder like is music internal too or is it external? Well, or? music is, I, I, I would say it's, it is externalizing what's inside because mm-hmm. it's all about expression, expressing passions. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's emotive even more than storytelling. Um, because it comes from a place that's felt rather than told. That's true. So it's a feeling rather than like a a known entity. Yeah, you can, yeah. and especially classical music, I suppose. I mean, there are like lyrics to some classical pieces, mm-hmm. obviously like operas. And, well, an opera is mm-hmm. telling a story in a totally different way. Completely different. And I, th- I always like remember that like people actually used to speak all those languages. Yeah. So when you go to the <laughs> opera, you actually knew so, what was happening. Oh, that's Italian. Wait, that's... That's French. French. That's uh, they're speaking in English now, but I guess I don't know. My some of my favorite things though, like uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Let the Right One In. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So both versions. Have you? Yeah. Uh, well, don't even don't even first. bring don't even bring Let Me In into this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna. Sorry. I had to wash my eyes after yeah. I saw that. Sorry guys, but the, and I'd read the book first. Yeah, and I so I hadn't read the book first. I remember Apple used to have these like Apple trailers, and I used to when I was younger, I used to click on every single one, and I would watch every single trailer. Yeah. And I remember I saw the trailer for Let the Right One In, and I told my dad, we have to go see it. And so he drove me. We were living in Ojai, and he drove me all the way to L.A. to go see it with me. Nice. It was such a great experience. And worth it. And worth it. And it became one of my favorite movies. I was probably in like fifth, sixth, seventh grade maybe, I think, when it came out. Um, And it was such a great experience. And then I read the book. And I was shocked at like how he adapted it because it was like my first experience of like here's an author adapting their own work and how he hid things in the background like um like the teachers talking about something or something's on the radio and it's like that's a whole chapter in the book it's just like barely on the radio yeah and i just thought that was so fascinating like you can really encode your own book yeah you have to learn brevity when you're making a movie and you can be expansive when you're writing a book yeah and it's really great when 
an author understands the difference between media. Yeah. And somebody like him, uh, somebody like King, somebody like Parker, um, the people that I've worked with and known, they know the difference. Just like, and this is, uh, you know, a famous thing that Stephen King has said, um, when people say, you know, how do you feel about so-and-so fucking up your book? He said, the book's right here on the shelf. The book still exists. The movie exists. didn't change the book at all. Thank God Might for have that. been a shitty movie, but it didn't <laughs> didn't ruin my book. Well, it's funny. Like something like Altered States, uh, the book is completely different from the movie. Yeah, and both are great. And both are great. Like I remember I, I watched the movie for a, a Gnosticism class where we were doing like a comparison with text. And then I read the book like thinking, oh, there must be like all these religious things like in the book. No, it's just like two long chapters of like this and that. And it's very technical. One of the things I love is that a novelist who is a capable screenwriter as well, and Patty Chayefsky was a playwright before he was mm-hmm. a novelist or screenwriter, but when they adapt their own material, they have the luxury of changing whatever they want. Exactly. They can just do whatever. You can get whatever. a new idea after you wrote your book and go, you know what? The movie, we can do this. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And yeah. I love how visual. And then also, apparently he and Ken Russell did not have a good collaboration on that no. uh, at, in the slightest, which no, no, does not surprise not me, all. apparently. But, they and were then, big fights. And, then and some, they were both big personalities. Oh, I, yeah, for sure. Two titans in the industry. And then you have something like Rollerball, where the it's a really good collaboration, apparently, with Jewison and the author, uh, which was excellent. Like, I guess Jewison came up with all of the, the stuff for the game and like oh, how, how that great. worked. So yeah. that was excellent. But I guess it really depends. When you're able to work together with somebody, and I've adapted my own literary material stuff. Oh, Oh, there we go. We're done. We're done. You can finish your thought if you'd like, though, man. I was just saying (laughs) that I've adapted my own literary material, and I've been able to, like my short story, Chocolate, was the basis for my first Masters of Horror episode that I directed. And the short story stops at the halfway point. And the screenplay continues beyond that. Oh, that's great because you were able to have more. Yeah, it's my own story. I can do whatever the fuck I want with it. (laughs) You sure can. So that is all the time that we have for today. But Mick, is there any final thought that you would like to tell the audience? Well, as far as between books and movies, (laughs) consume both. Yeah. (laughs) It's really good for you. And you can love both even if they're completely different. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people especially today, are only into visual media, and there's a lot to be gleaned from reading. Yeah, and actually using your eyeballs and a piece of paper. Yes, Not just like an e-reader or on the computer. Not just on your Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to your local library, actually. That's right, and pick up my books. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You should. Amazon. (laughs) Okay, we're going to go to Amazon, not the local library, I guess, but... (laughs) Yeah, uh, small press. (laughs) That's it for today. Thank you so much to my birthday buddy, Mick Garris. Thank you, Gala. So you can find Mick on Instagram or Twitter at Mick Garris PM, or you can catch him on the Postmortem Podcast on Dread Central. I'm Gala Avery, and this has been The Gala Show. The Gala Show is brought to you by the Video Archives Podcast Network. This episode was executive produced by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Gala Avery. Music composed by Andy Milburn. As always, I'm your host, Gala Avery. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. 
Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives. I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 